July. They canceled the 4th of July. Marty Koslow gets remarkably little sympathy from the people closest to him when he tells them that. Perhaps it is because they simply don't understand the depth of his pain. Don't be foolish, his mother tells him brusquely. She is often brusque with him, but when she has to rationalize thus brusqueness to herself, she tells herself she will not spoil the boy just because he is handicapped, because he is going to spend his life sitting in a wheelchair. Wait until next year, his dad tells him, clapping him on the back. Twice as good. Twice as Dudley damn good. You'll see, little bitty buddy. Hey, hey. Herman Koslaw is the phys ed teacher at the Tarkers Mills Grammar School, and he almost always talks to his son in what Marty thinks of as dad's big pal voice. He always says, hey, hey, a great deal. The truth is, Marty makes Herman Koslaw a little nervous. Herman lives in a world of violently active children, kids who run races, bash baseballs, swim rally sprints. And in the midst of directing all of this, he would sometimes look up and see Marty, somewhere close by, sitting in his wheelchair, watching. It made Herman nervous. And when he was nervous, he spoke in his bellowing big pal voice and said, Hey, hey! or doodly damn, and called Marty his little bitty buddy. <laughs> so you finally didn't get something you wanted, his big sister says when he tries to tell her how he had looked forward to this night, how he looks forward to it every year. The flowers of light in the sky over the commons, the flash gun pops of brightness followed by the cutting crack sounds that rolled back and forth between the low hills that surrounded the town. Kate is 13 to Marty's 10, and convinced that everyone loves Marty just because he can't walk. She is delighted that the fireworks have been canceled. Even Grandfather Coslaw, who could usually be counted on for sympathy, hadn't been impressed. Nobody is canceling their fort of Chulai, boy he said in his heavy, salvic accent. He was sitting on the veranda, and Marty buzzed out through the French doors in his battery-powered wheelchair to talk to him. Grandfather Koslaw sat looking down the slope of the lawn towards the woods, a glass of snops in one hand. This had happened on July 2nd, two days ago. It's just the fireworks they cancel, and you know why. Marty did. The killer. That was why. In the papers now, they were calling him the full moon killer. But Marty had heard plenty of whispers around school before classes had ended for the summer. Lots of kids were saying that the full moon killer wasn't a real man at all, but some sort of supernatural creature. A werewolf, maybe. Marty didn't believe that. Werewolves were strictly for the horror movies. But he supposed there could be some kind of crazy guy out there who only felt the urge to kill when the moon was full. The fireworks have been canceled because of their dirty, rotten curfew. In January, sitting in his wheelchair by the French doors and looking out onto the veranda, 
watching the wind blow bitter veils of snow across the frozen crust of standing by the front door, stiff as a statue in his locked leg braces, watching the other kids pull their sleds toward Wright's Hill, just thinking of the fireworks made a difference. Thinking of a warm summer night, a cold Coke, of fire roses blooming in the dark in pinwheels and an American flag made of Roman candles. But now they have canceled the fireworks. And no matter what anyone says, Marty feels that it is really the fourth itself, his fourth, that they have done to death. Only his Uncle Al, who blew into town late this morning to have the traditional salmon and fresh peas with the family, had understood. He had listened closely, standing on the veranda tiles in his dripping bathing suit. The others were swimming and laughing in the Kozlaw's new pool on the other side of the house after lunch. Marty finished and looked at Uncle Al anxiously. Do you see what I mean? Do you get it? It hasn't got anything to do with being crippled, like Katie says, or getting the fireworks all mixed up with America, like Grandpa thinks. It's just not right. When you look forward to something for so long, it's not right for Victor Bull and some dumb town council to come along and take it away. Not when it's something you really need. Do you get it? There was a long, agonizing pause while Uncle Al considered Marty's question. Time enough for Marty to hear the kick rattle of the diving board at the deep end of the pool, followed by Dad's hearty bellow. Looking good, Kate. Kate! Hey, hey, looking real good. And then Uncle Al said quietly, Sure, I get it. And I got something for you, I think. Maybe you can make your own fourth. My own fourth? What do you mean? Come on out to my car, Marty. I've got something. Well, I'll show you. And he was striding away along the concrete path that circled the house before Marty could even ask him what it meant. His wheelchair hummed along the path to the driveway, away from the sound of the pools. Splashes, laughing screams, the cathum of the diving board, away from his father's booming big pal voice. The sound of his wheelchair was low, steady hum that Marty barely heard. All his life that sound and the clank of his braces had been the music of his movement. Uncle Al's car was a low-slung Mercedes convertible. Marty knew his parents disapproved of it. $28,000 death trap, his mother had once called it with a brisk little sniff. But Marty loved it. Once Uncle Al had taken him for a ride on some of the back roads that crisscrossed Tarker's Mills, and he had driven fast. Seventy. Maybe eighty. He wouldn't tell Marty how fast they were going. If you don't know, you won't be scared, he had said. But Marty hadn't been scared. His belly had been sore the next day from laughing. Uncle Al took something out of the glove compartment of his car. And as Marty rolled up and stopped, he put a bulky cellophane package on the boy's withered thighs. Here you go, kid, he said. Happy Fourth of July. The first thing Marty saw were exotic Chinese markings on the package's label. Then he saw what was inside, and his heart seemed to squeeze up in his chest. 
the cellophane package was full of fireworks. The ones that look like pyramids are twizzers, Uncle Al said. Marty, absolutely stunned with joy, moved his lips to speak, but nothing came out. Light the fuses, set them down, and they spray as many colors as there are on a dragon's breath. The tubes with the thin sticks coming out of them are bottle rockets. Put them in an empty Coke bottle, and up they go. The little ones are fountains. There are two Roman candles, and of course, a package of firecrackers. But you better set those off tomorrow. Uncle Al cast an eye toward the noises coming from the pool. Thank you, Marty was finally able to gasp. Thank you, Uncle Al. Just keep mum about where you got them, Uncle Al said. A nod's as good as a wink to a blind horse, right? Right, right, Marty babbled. Although he had no idea what nod, winks, and blind horses had to do with fireworks. But are you sure you don't want them, Uncle Al? I can get more, Uncle Al said. I know a guy over in Bridgeton. He'll be doing business until it gets dark. He put a hand on Marty's head. You keep your fourth after everyone else goes to bed. Don't shoot off any of the noisy ones and wake them all up. And for Christ's sake, don't blow your hand off or my big sis will never speak to me again. Then Uncle Al laughed and climbed into his car and roared the engine to life. He raised his hand in a half salute to Marty and then he was gone while Marty was still trying to stutter his thanks. He sat there for a moment, looking after his uncle, swallowing hard to keep from crying. Then he put the packet of fireworks into his shirt and buzzed back to the house and his room. In his mind, he was already waiting for night to come and everyone to be asleep. He is the first one in bed that night. His mother comes in and kisses him goodnight, briskly, not looking at his stick-like legs under the sheet, you okay, Marty? Yes, Mom. She pauses, as if to say something more, and then gives her head a little shake. She leaves. His sister Kate comes in. She doesn't kiss him, merely leans her head close to his neck so he can smell the chlorine in her hair, and she whispers, See? You don't always get what you want just because you're a cripple. You might be surprised what I get he says softly. And she regards him for a moment with narrow suspicion before going out. His father comes in last and sits on the side of Marty's bed. He speaks in his booming big pal voice. Everything okay, big guy? You're off to bed early. Real early. Just feeling a little tired, daddy. Okay. He slaps one of Marty's wasted legs with his big hand winces unconsciously, and then gets up in a hurry. Sorry about the fireworks, but just wait until next year. Hey, hey, Rudy Patootie. Marty smiles a small, secret smile. So then he begins the waiting for the rest of the house to go to bed. It takes a long time. The TV runs on and on in the living room. The canned laugh tracks often augmented by Kate's shrill giggles. The toilet in Grandpa's bedroom goes with a bang and a flush. His mother chats on the phone, wishes someone a happy fourth, says yes. It was a shame the fireworks show had been canceled. 
but she thought that, under the circumstances, everyone understood why it had to be. Yes, Marty had been disappointed. Once, near the end of her conversation, she laughs. And when she laughs, she doesn't sound a bit brisk. She hardly ever laughs around Marty. Every now and then, as 7.30 became 8 and 9, his hand creeps under his pillow to make sure the cellophane bag of fireworks is still there. Around 9.30, when the moon gets high enough to peer into his window and flood his room with silvery light, the house finally begins to wind down. The TV clicks off. Kate goes to bed, protesting that all her friends got to stay up late in the summer. After she's gone, Marty's folks sit in the parlor a while longer, their conversation only murmurs, and, and maybe he slept. Because when he next touches the wonderful bag of fireworks, he realizes that the house is totally still, and the moon has become even brighter, bright enough to cast shadows. He takes the bag out along with the book of matches he found earlier. He tucks his pajama shirt into his pajama pants, drops both the bag and the matches into his shirt, and prepares to get out of bed. This is an operation for Marty, but not a painful one, as people sometimes seem to think. There is no feeling of any kind in his legs, so there can be no pain. He grips the headboard of the bed, pulls himself up to a sitting position, and then shifts his legs over the edge of the bed one by one. He does this one-handed, using his other hand to hold the rail which begins at his bed and runs all the way down the room. Once he tried moving his legs with both hands and somersaulted helplessly, head over heels onto the floor. The crash brought everyone running. You stupid show-off! Kate had whispered fiercely into his ear after he'd been helped onto his chair, a little shaken up but laughing crazily in spite of the swelling on one temple and his split lip. You want to kill yourself, huh? And then she had run out of the room, crying. Once he's sitting on the edge of the bed, he wipes his hands on the front of his shirt to make sure they're dry and won't slip. Then he uses the rail to go hand over hand to his wheelchair. His useless scarecrow legs, so much dead weight, drag along behind him. The moonlight is bright enough to cast his shadow bright and crisp on the floor ahead of him. His wheelchair is on the brake, and he swings into it with confident ease. He pauses for a moment, catching his breath, listening to the silence of the house. Don't shoot off any of the noisy ones tonight, Uncle Al had said and listening to the silence, Marty knows that he was right. He will keep his fourth by himself and to himself, and no one will know. At least not until tomorrow, when they see the blackened husks of the twizzers and the fountains out in the veranda, and then it wouldn't matter. As many colors as there are on a dragon's breath, Uncle Al had said. But Marty supposes there's no law against a dragon breathing silently. He lets the brake off his chair and flips the power switch. The little amber eye, the one that means his battery is well charged, comes on in the dark. Marty pushes, right turn. The chair rotates right. Hey, hey. When it is facing the veranda doors, he pushes forward. The chair rolls forward, humming quietly. 
Marty slips the latch on the double doors, pushes forward again, and rolls outside. He tears open the wonderful bag of fireworks and then pauses for a moment, captivated by the summer night. The psalmic chirr of the crickets, the low, fragrant breeze that barely stirs the leaves of the trees at the edge of the woods, and the almost unearthly radiance of the moon. He can wait no longer. He brings out a snake, strikes a match, lights its fuse, and watches in entranced silence as it splutters green-blue fire and grows magically, writhing and spitting flame from its tail. The fourth, he thinks, his eyes alight. The fourth, the fourth, happy fourth of July to me. The snake's bright flame gutters low, flickers, goes out. Marty lights one of the triangular twizzers and watches as it spouts fire as yellow as his dad's lucky golf shirt. Before it can go out, he lights a second that shoots off light as dusky red as the roses which grow beside the picket fence around the new pool. Now a wonderful smell of spent powder fills the night for the wind to rafter and pull away slowly. His groping hands pull out the flat pocket of firecrackers next, and he has opened them before he realizes that to light these would be a calamity. Their jumping, snapping, machine gun roar would wake the whole neighborhood. Fire, flood, alarm, excursion. All of those, and one ten-year-old boy named Martin Coslaw in the doghouse until Christmas, most likely, He pushes the black cats further up on his lap, gropes happily in the bag again, and comes out with the biggest twizzer of all. A world-class twizzer, if there ever was one. It's almost as big as his closed fist. He lights it with mixed fright and delight and tosses it. Red light as bright as hellfire fills the night. And it is by the shifting feverish glow that Marty sees the bushes at the fringe of the woods below the veranda shake and part. There is a low noise, half cough, half snarl. The beast appears. It stands for a moment at the base of the lawn and seems to scent the air. And then it begins to shamble up the slope toward where Marty sits on the state flagstones in his wheelchair, his eyes bulging, his upper body shrinking against the canvas back of his chair. The beast is hunched over, but it is clearly walking on its two rear legs, walking the way a man would walk. The red light of Twizzer skates hellishly across its green eyes. It moves slowly, its wide nostrils flaring rhythmically, scenting prey, almost surely scenting that prey's weakness. Marty can smell it, its hair, its sweat, its savagery. It grunts again. Its thick upper lip, the color of liver, wrinkles back to show its heavy, tusk-like teeth. Its pelt is painted a dull, silvery red. It has almost reached him. Its clawed hands so like unlike human hands, reaching for his throat. When the boy remembers the packet of firecrackers, hardly aware he is going to do it, 
He strikes a match and touches it to the master fuse. The fuse spits a hot line of red sparks that singe the fine hair on the back of his hand, crisping them. The werewolf, momentarily off balance, draws backwards, uttering a questioning grunt that, like his hands, is nearly human. Marty throws the packet of firecrackers in its face. They go off in a banging, flashing train of light and sound. The beast utters a screech roar of pain and rage. It staggers backwards, clawing at the explosions that tattoo grains of fire and burning gunpowder onto its face. Marty sees one of its lamp-like green eyes whiff out as four crackers go off at once with a terrific, thundering kapow at the right side of its muzzle. Now its screams are pure agony. It claws at its face, bellowing. And as the first lights go on in the Coslaw house, it turns and bounds back down the lawn toward the woods, leaving behind it only a smell of singed fur and the first frightened and bewildered cries from the house. What was that? His mother's voice, not sounding a bit brisk. Who's there, goddammit? His father, not sounding very much like a big pal. Marty? Kate, her voice quivering, not sounding mean at all. Marty, are you all right? Grandfather Kozlov sleeps through the whole thing. Marty leans back in his wheelchair as the big red twizzer gutters its way to extinction. Its light is now the mild and lovely pink of an early sunrise. He is too shocked to weep. But his shock is not entirely a dark emotion, although the next day his parents would bundle him off to visit his Uncle Jim and Aunt Ida over in Stowe, Vermont, where he will stay until the end of summer vacation. The police concur. They feel that the full moon killer might try to attack Marty again and silence him. There is a deep exhaustion in him. It is stronger than the shock. He has looked into the terrible face of the beast and lived. And there is a simple, childlike joy in him as well. A quiet joy he will never be able to communicate later to anyone. Not even Uncle Al, who might have understood. He feels this joy because the fireworks have happened after all. And while his parents stewed and wondered about his psyche, and if he would have complexes from the experience, Marty Coslaw came to believe in his heart that it had been the best fourth of all.